Thank you guys for the work you put in to lead us to the Lord's presence, uh, to his throne room, to praise him, to hold up his name as the people of God. That last song, what will we do without the Holy Spirit? Nothing. Nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, we are entirely on our own and left to ourselves. And so this morning we do pray that the Holy Spirit would come and illuminate the word which he inspired. It's a wonderful thing about it is when we stick to his word, we know we have his blessing because it's his word. He inspired it. The, the same Holy Spirit who inspired the word is the one who illuminates it and brings it into the heart of the hearer. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to come and be with us this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 7. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 15 to 20. I know last week was a little bit arduous for the hearer. I was sniffling the whole time, uh, not only during the sermon, but also maybe in the podcast as you were listening to it. Sniffle, sniffle, sniffle. My wife was, was faithful to point that out to me. <laughs> you know, as wives, as wives do, we're thankful for that. Uh, so yeah, it, it, was, uh, it, was a hard, it was hard going, but uh, hopefully this time won't be quite so bad. I've taken some measures to uh, hopefully prevent that. So Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. And we are now in the final section of the Sermon on the Mount, which began last week with verse 13 of chapter 7. So we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. <clears throat> and this has been, a, I think, an incredible series for us as we have felt the weight of, of Jesus' nutshell teaching of his kingdom message. Uh, Jesus' kingdom manifesto, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it as he's pressed down onto each of our hearts what it is that he requires of us, that he wants for us, for our lives as, as his followers, as his disciples. And we've now come to the final section, larger section of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in verse 13. So from verse 13 on to the end of chapter 7, with the exception of those last two verses, which kind of narrate the end of it, we have this this distinct unit of this text. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is a call to action. That's what we have from verse 13 onward, a call to action. And as James Montgomery Boyce says, it is a warning against hearing without committing. And I think this is what James had in mind when he says, don't be simply a hearer of the word, but be a hearer and a doer. So don't just hear the word, don't just hear Jesus' sermon and say, wow, that's beautiful, Jesus. That's penetrating. That's wise. That, that really just portrays God for us. Thank you, Jesus. That gives us some really good ethics. But Jesus now is, is, is really, the, the rubber meets the road here for Jesus. He's bringing us to action. He's calling us to that and warning us against walking away from him at this point having simply heard every topic and every bit of conviction that you have experienced throughout this sermon is meant to lead you to this call of radical discipleship. So look back over this period of, of service since we started this just after the beginning of the year, 
We spent quite a bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount. Look back to just after the beginning of the year, 2017, as we kind of now coming towards the end of the year, and think to yourself, how has the Lord pressed in on me through the Sermon on the Mount? And all of those things that God's spoken into your heart throughout this journey, now Jesus wants to put some legs on all of that. He wants us to realize the seriousness of his call. This is the master saying to you, will you really follow me? Will you really be a disciple? This is the king saying, will you really serve me? Will you serve the king? Will you be a disciple of the master? Jesus is far too kind and gracious to let us just float along in a weak and uncommitted Christian life. So here's the thing. When we experience this convicting grace of God, this, this grace of God that is very uncomfortable, this uncomfortable grace, this pain, this angst, this challenging going on in our hearts, we need to recognize this, that this is Jesus training us in righteousness. He is training us to renounce Ungodliness, just as we saw in our series on Titus, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce those things that were a part of our pre-converted life. And so it's, it should be no surprise to us, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, that the Holy Spirit has done some serious work, some serious cutting and surgical work in each of our hearts. God is gracious. And that's why he does this to us. Because God is not happy to let us sit in our sin. Because what does sin do? It destroys and enslaves. Jesus does not want you to be a slave. He's the liberator. He's a redeemer. He does not want you to be destroyed. He wants you to flourish in him. To have life in his Name. And so Jesus here is graciously calling us to action and to seriousness about following Jesus. How much false discipling, how much false discipleship is there in Christian churches today? How much laxness, laxity and weakness and superficiality is there today among evangelical Christians? All the while... The Sermon on the Mount is like a wrecking ball. It comes along to that mode of Christianity, that way of doing the Christian life, and it just smashes it. And so if we're in that house, we're going to feel it smash. We're going to feel it topple over on top of us. It's going to call us out of such a life into a life that Jesus has put before us in these chapters. So let me ask you this question. What will you do when you come down from the mountain? And here's what I mean. Look at verse, look at chapter 8, verse 1. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, after the Sermon on the Mount is complete, look at what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain. So here's the question. In due course, soon enough, we will come down off of the mountain with Jesus. We'll move on as a church. We'll move past 
the Sermon on the Mount to other wonderful, glorious portions of God's Word. But here's the question. As you have sat, as it were, on the mountain with Jesus, as He has spoken to you, the question is this. What will you do now when you come down off of this mountain as the Lord has spoken to you as His disciple? Last week, as Jesus began this section of His sermon, in verses 13 to 14, Jesus put before us a choice between two ways. And it's interesting that as we move out from these verses, we notice that these two ways that Jesus gave us in verses 13 and 14, two gates, the the wide gate and the narrow gate, the, the broad way or the easy way and the constricted way or the hard way, as we move out from these two ways, it's really interesting as you look at chapter 7 that this, this continues to carry through to the rest of, through the rest of the section. So these two ways, if you look at chapter 7, really become two trees. Verses 15 to 20. Two professions of faith or two claims. Verses 21 to 23. And two houses. Verses 24 to 27. You can say two builders. So Jesus has put before us the main idea at the beginning of the section. Two ways. Choose. Which will you go? Will you go through the, the wide gate to the broad road or through the narrow gate to the narrow road? And then he wants to illustrate it in various other ways. Two trees, two claims, two professions, two end results, and then he goes to two houses. One who builds his life on sand and one who builds his life on the rock. So today we come to the two trees. That's where we find ourselves today, verses 15 to 20 where Jesus discusses this category of people called false prophets. In verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets. Now, you'll remember, if you were here at this time in our service, at the very beginning, the call to worship. Our call to worship this morning was taken from Deuteronomy 18, where God promises Moses that in the future... He will send the people a prophet like Moses. Do you remember that passage? One of the most fascinating things to do, if you haven't done this at all, or if you maybe done it a little, maybe do it more, is to go back through the Old Testament and find all of the ways that Christ is foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. And so we do a Jesse tree for Advent around Christmas time, leading up to Christmas. And it's a great way to do that because you begin to see how Jesus is being foretold all throughout the Old Testament. He's being pictured. Prophecies are being given that say, this one is going to come and this is what he will be like. Well, Deuteronomy 18 is one of those texts where God promises a prophet like Moses. He will be the prophet, the one who speaks for God. So let me read you those verses. Chapter 18, verse 15, it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking to the people. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verses 18 and 19, it says this. I will raise up for them a prophet. This is God speaking to Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Listen to these words. And I will put my words, 
in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's judgment. So let me just say to you, if you've been coming, you're not a Christian, you've heard these words, one day it will be required of you what you have failed to do with these words. These words of Christ as we have, as we have gone through. I want you to notice in verse 18, God says to Moses, I will put my words in his mouth. Now I want you to go to the Sermon on the Mount, go to the very beginning, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. I want you to see this. So God promises Moses that he will raise up a prophet like him, that he will put his words in his mouth. And look at, look at this, verse 2, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, This is the prophet. He's come. Matthew is telling us this prophet, this one like Moses, who goes up on the mountain, just as Moses went up on the mountain, that this one, this, this lawgiver Moses, Christ is here explicating the law, applying the law to the heart. The prophet, the one like Moses has come. And it is this one, and only this one, the true prophet, who here, in our passage for today, exposes false prophets. That's what Jesus wants to do for us today. So the title for the sermon this morning is Spotting a Counterfeit. Let me go ahead and get you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for the Holy Spirit to bless us. seed, her descendant, would crush the head of the serpent. You promised Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And you promised your people that you would bring your Christ. You promised Moses that the prophet would come. You promised David that his descendant would come and would rule on the 
his throne forever. Throughout the prophets, he promised that the Savior, Christ, would come and redeem all people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles also. Us, we're grateful this morning that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And that even today, you bring us your light through your word, the Bible. So Father, we pray that the Bible would be the center of all of our lives. That these precious words from the Lord Jesus would penetrate our hearts. That you would, that you would bring about holy conviction of sin. That you would bring about protection from future sin. That you would that you would give us a, a reminder of our adoption in Jesus. For those who are not adopted, that you would show that clearly and, and turn those hearts towards your Son in faith and repentance. Father, we are grateful that you have brought us providentially here this morning to hear this unadulterated truth from the mouth of our Lord. Help us to be those who respond in faith, not walking out of here in self-reliance, in, in our own personal resolve, but to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to, to humble our hearts before you and cry out for your mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me, as so many did when Christ walked the earth. Help us now, Jesus, to hear you. Speak in us, move us, move our cold hearts. Warm them up and turn them to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I said, the title for the sermon this morning is Spotting a Counterfeit. And as we look at this topic of spotting a counterfeit, I think Jesus directs us to consider three things. These are the three things we're going to look at this morning. First, the reality. Second, the responsibility. And third, the recognition. <clears throat> the reality, the responsibility, and the recognition. So the first of these, the reality. This passage begins in verse 15 with the words, Beware of false prophets. So here at the very beginning, before we go any further in this passage, I think we just need to stop and simply consider the fact that there are counterfeits. That false prophets exist. That these kinds of people are a reality. We, we can't just skip over that and get into the rest of this. We have to, we have to really understand that this is, this is a, a part of what it means to be a Christian in the world. Is that there are among us, and I mean the universal church, among us, that there are coming to us. There are out there in the world false prophets, false teachers. People who pretend to speak for God, but who do not speak God's truth. We see Jesus' words here echoed in various places by his earliest apostles and followers. One of the things, and this is just a sampling, but what I've tried to do is choose different people. Peter, John, Paul, and Jude. Just to give you a sense for how Jesus, what Jesus says here, beware of false prophets, how that begins to work itself out later in the earliest followers of Jesus. This is a major theme throughout the New Testament, that once Jesus ascends into heaven, false prophets and false teachers begin to abound. We saw that in Titus at the very beginning. 
The elders were to be appointed so that they could sat silence those, the many who were teaching false doctrine. You remember that word, many, in Titus chapter 1? So I want to give you a little bit of a sampling for how we find these words of Jesus about false prophets being echoed throughout his earliest followers and apostles. So let's start with Peter. I suppose that's the most obvious place to start. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, he says this, <coughs> But false, prophet, <coughs> false prophets also arose among the people, speaking of the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. Do you hear that? Just as there will be false teachers among you. Inevitability. It's inevitable. There will be. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. There will be false teachers, and many, many people will go after them. Many people will follow them. I have heard, I have heard this idea that so-and-so well-known pastor or individual out there, whoever he may be, has a, a massive megachurch. Therefore, see the logic, therefore he must be blessed of God. False, false, many, many, many will go after these false teachers. Thousands upon thousands, sometimes, many thousands. <laughs> so that's Peter. We also hear this from John, 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. This is as we read it just, just now, as Pete read but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Listen to this. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many have gone out. So there's Peter, there's John. Now listen to, to Paul. Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, 31. He's commissioning them. He's, he's counseling them. He's being kind of a pastor to them. And listen to what he says to them in Acts 20, 29, 31. He says this, I know... That after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Fierce wolves will come in, and they'll be among you. Do you see that? Not just on the outside, not just on the periphery, not just lobbing in missiles. They'll be up in you, among you. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So there's Paul. Peter, John, Paul, now listen to Jude. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality or licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. When the grace of God is used to promote sin or to promote a life of sensuality or laxness or licentiousness, then it is a denial of Christ as Lord. 
Because where Christ is Lord, there is righteousness, there is holiness, there is obedience, there is service, there is submission. So we have Peter, we have John, we have Paul, we have Jude, all reiterating or echoing these words of Jesus. Beware of false prophets, false prophets are a reality. They're in the church, and listen to this. They were in the church in the first century, and here's what's amazing. If you study just a little bit of church history, and I mean like the very beginning of church history, there's a group of people, early Christian writers, called the Apostolic Fathers. These are the very earliest Christians. The anti-Nicene Christians means they, they precede the Council of Nicaea in the 300s. And they go back even further, all the way to the very end of the first century and the beginning of the second century. People like Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr. And one of the things that you will find in these very earliest Christian writings is that they are attacking false teachers. And in fact, Clement is writing to Corinth. And Ignatius is writing to Ephesus, where Paul himself says that this will happen. Wolves will come in among you. It was happening then. And here's what we need to understand. It's happening now. It's happening here. It has been happening for 2,000 years. It is happening all around us. has the potential of happening among us. And so, Jesus says, beware. When Peter says that they will operate secretly, Notice his language. He says they will operate secretly. And when Jude says that they have crept in, look at the language. They have crept in unnoticed. When they say these words, they are essentially confirming what Jesus says in our passage. What does Jesus say here? He says that these false prophets will what? Come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous Wolves. And here's what that means. These false prophets are subtle, sneaky, undetected, deceptive, camouflaged, appearing to be genuine in every way. Look at them on the left, they look authentic. Look at them on the right, they look from the back, from the front, because they are clothed like sheep all the way around, from head to toe, front and back, side to side. They look outwardly in every way. Like a real sheep. Like they belong among the sheep. They know all the right words. All the right cliches. All those evangelical cliches. Those church, that churchy language. They know all of that. They speak with passion about all the things of God. You cannot tell on the surface that they are false. It is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so these false prophets or teachers disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. See, Satan is very good at looking good. He's very good at not looking evil. He doesn't look like a werewolf. He doesn't look like the people who dress up like him at Halloween. He doesn't look that way. He looks like light to the blinded sinner. He looks like, like what is good and right and true. And so the sinner falls after him. The same is true of a false teacher. Totally ineffective, he looks like darkness. 
but he doesn't. He looks like a servant of righteousness, but he's not. So what's the main point? The main point is this. It's simple. They exist today. We need to be aware of this. We need to understand this. What's the implication for us? I'm going to give you two words. Naive and nice. Naive and nice. As we think about the implications for us, we cannot be naive. We cannot be fooled into thinking that every apparently genuine Christian is a Christian. That every apparently genuine Christian teacher is a genuine Christian teacher. That just because he knows the words to say, or looks the part, or has a very moral disposition, that he is, who am I to say he's not? He cannot be naive. Everything about Jesus' words here say to us, don't be naive. Don't be naive. I also want to look at this idea of being nice. I'm just going to put it bluntly like this. Niceness does not equal authenticity. There are lots and lots of really nice false teachers. They're just lovely people. Lovely personalities. Bubbly folks. Cheerful. They seem quite kind in interactions in life. They're comfortable to be around. They're easy to be around. They make you feel good about yourself. They are lovely people with much charisma, but they lead people to heaven. There are these people out there. And here's the thing that's so credible about Jesus' words here. It's not the obvious ones that we have to worry about. That's what's amazing. It's not those ones that are flashy. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm not going to get up here and name any names. But it's not the folks who you go, well, that's a false prophet. Duh. Hello. That's obvious. Right? It's not so much those that Jesus is referring to here. These are those who are dressed like sheep, and they really do look the part. They're sneaky. Deceptive. Those are the ones that we have to be on guard against. So in light of this reality, this fact, what are we to do? What are we to do? That leads us to our second point. So we have the reality. Secondly, the responsibility. If this is true, if there are false teachers among us in the church as universally understood, coming to us, among us, growing out from within us, and so forth, what are we to do? Well, just as the last section, verses 13 and 14, began with an imperative, what was it? Verse 13, enter. Enter. A command from the Lord. Here, Jesus also gives us a command. It is the one command of the entire passage. Beware. Beware. When we see something like that, it helps us to understand what the main idea of the passage is. Everything about this passage tells us that it's about false teachers and that Christ's overarching message to his people is this. Beware of them. Beware. Jesus is saying that as those two gates in two ways are being considered, remember from last week, two gates, two ways, as they are being considered, there will be false prophets who will try to lead us onto the broad road rather than the narrow. 
These false prophets are pointing in the wrong direction. They're pointing away from that which is the narrow way and pointing towards that which is the broad way. Leading us to destruction. So the disciples or followers of Jesus must beware. This is the language of danger. I want you to see this. It's the language of danger, of threat, of caution, of warning. The definition of this word, beware, is to be in a state of alert, to be concerned about, to care for, to take care. This is what Jesus is telling his people to do. So we see here from Jesus' words that we have a responsibility to beware. But why? Why must we spot these counterfeits? Jesus is telling us we must spot them. Why? Well, look at the language of our passage. We want to understand why it is that we must spot these, her- these, these false teachers. Why is that? Let's look at the details of our passage. First, as we've already noted, they are subtle and deceptive. They are imposters dressed in sheep's clothing. We won't recognize them unless we're on the alert to hear that. If you're just kind of slogging through the Christian life, it's kind of going, everybody's gathered together, maybe a Bible study here or there, just sort of doing your thing, kind of walking along the surface, you're not alert. There's no vigilance. There's no readiness to see and observe and spot that which is false or that which is a counterfeit. We'll read their books, listen to their sermons, adopt their theology, and emulate their life. Just like that. It just happens when we're not alert. We fall right into that way of life. Second, so first, they are subtle and deceptive. That's why we have to be alert, because if we're not alert, we're not going to spot them. They're not obvious. You have to be alert in order to see them. But the second is that they are, they are false. And this implies that they do not bring the truth. They do not speak from God. And this means that they are liars. And if the truth is what sets us free, then they are those who breed bondage. Do you see that? They are false prophets. They do not convey the truth of God. The truth liberates us and it builds us up, even if it hurts, even if it's painful, even if for the time being it does some serious hard work on us. It liberates us from slavery and builds us up into the head of his Christ. But falsity does not do that. False prophets breed lies and bondage. So first, they are subtle deceptive. We have to beware. We have to beware because they are false. Thirdly, we have to beware because they are ravenous wolves. Do you see that? That language here? Look at our passage. Verse 15. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, the wolf was the primary enemy of the sheep, which already tells you that this false prophet is an enemy of the sheep. The same sheep who follow him are actually the target of what he's doing. He is their enemy. They're following their enemy. But we also see this idea of being ravenous. This is the language of one who devours, who snatches and scatters. Listen to Jesus' language in John 10, 12. That good shepherd passage. He says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen to what Jesus says in that passage with regard to the wolf. John 10, 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming 
and leaves the sheep and flees. Now listen to what the wolf does. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And that's the work of false prophets. Christians, people within the church are snatched up, snatched away. And the church is divided and splintered. Fractions, factions begin to develop. Finally, look at verse 19 of our passage. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's what I want you to see. These false prophets must be spotted because they lead their followers to fire. You see that? This is no small thing. It's, it's not a small matter that, that, that people are following after false teachers because where are they headed? Jesus tells us they're, they're cut down and thrown into the fire, which tells us that all of those who follow after them will end in the same place. So we must be wary. The last point instructs against being naive. Remember the reality? The false prophets are reality. They're here. They're there. If the last point instructs us not to be naive, here we are instructed not to be lax, not to be sleepy-headed as Christians, but to be always alert and observant. Because of this great danger posed by false prophets, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you must recognize them. But Jesus doesn't leave it. Not only must these counterfeits be spotted, Jesus says they can be spotted. Now here's the amazing thing. We're not just at the whim of false teachers. We're not just at the whim of false prophets. We're not just at the whim of wrong teaching or wrong living. We live in a society, I think, contemporary evangelicalism, which is filled with much false teaching and many false prophets. But we're not left without compass. We're not left without a guide. We're not left without a means of discernment. And that's where we come finally to the recognition. So look at verses 16 to 20 of our text. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Notice at the end of verse 16 and in verse 20, we get this language. You will recognize, at the beginning of verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. And they go down to verse 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. This is, once again, that idea of an inclusio. It encloses what's in the middle. It brackets everything else. So what it tells us is that this entire passage is about recognizing these false prophets who are ravenous wolves. And here Jesus makes us two analogies, two tree analogies. First, in verse 16, he focuses on the character of the tree. It can only bear fruit in accordance with his nature. And so he says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course not. Right? Thorn bushes do not produce grapes. Ever. 
It's just never going to happen. Because grapes don't derive from thorn bushes. Thorn bushes don't give off or yield or produce grapes. And thistles do not give off figs. So in other words, the nature of the tree, the character of the tree itself, is determinative of its fruit. The fruit will derive, what you see, what hangs on the outside, will derive from the nature of what is feeding all of that fruit. That's the first thing that Jesus wants to point us to, the first tree analogy. The second tree analogy is in verses 17 to 18, where he focuses on the condition of the tree. So it says this, So every healthy tree bears good fruit. See, there's the condition, not the character of the tree, but the condition of the tree. You have one tree here, and it's healthy, and what happens? It bears good fruit. But then we have a tree over here, and it's a diseased tree. And what happens in that tree? Well, it bears diseased fruit. So the condition of the tree determines the condition of the fruit, just as the nature of the tree determines the nature of the fruit. So Jesus says this, that although these false prophets will be dressed like sheep, they will look a lot like sheep, and they will be very difficult to detect. Jesus says, although they look like healthy trees, they are not. You will know them by their fruit. They are not. Their lack of authenticity will show up in their bad fruit. Jesus says that this will always be the case. That we will be able to spot them. We will be able to discern with God's help false teachers by their bad quality fruit. So, what do we make of all of this language of fruit? I think there's a general idea and then there's some particular things that we need to look at as we, as we finish up this morning. So in general, when Jesus says that you will know them by their, their fruit, you will recognize them by their fruit, I think Jesus is drawing us to two general things that are absent in the case of a false prophet. And the first of those, we must go back, these are very basic, but they're, they're essential, they're general. And the first of those, we have to go back to John 15. Remember in John 15, abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing. I am the true vine, you are the branches. The branches that don't bear fruit, my Father cuts off, grows away. So Jesus is saying there that those trees, if you imagine, we're mixing the analogies now, but if you imagine that all of these trees have to essentially be growing out of the tree who is Jesus. So we know, generally speaking, that these false prophets, these false teachers, do not abide in Jesus. They abide in something other than Jesus. So that's the first general category that we have to capture. The second general category is Galatians chapter 5. Now this is very important for the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount has been used to kind of bolster moralism. People who don't know the Lord have come up to the Sermon on the Mount and said, Hey look, this is a great way to live. Let's just live this out. Let's check off these boxes. Let's follow this way of life. But here's what we have to understand. None of the Sermon on the Mount can be lived upon. Only the heart that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and that is daily energized by the Spirit as the person is filled with the Spirit, only that person is going to be able to go out and bear fruit. And so Galatians 5 says, 
that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So I'll just stop there for a moment. We know that false prophets are those who do not abide in Jesus and don't have the Spirit. And true prophets, true teachers, are those who abide in Jesus and who have the Spirit. So that's general, right? And you're thinking, okay, well, that's easy. I understand that part. But how do we understand this a little more specifically? How will we know them by their fruit? What is the fruit that we are to recognize in these false teachers? Now, there's a ton of stuff that could be said. And there are a lot of different details that I could draw you to. But what I wanted to do is, as we finish up this morning, is I want to draw you back to the Sermon on the Mount, because here's what we know. If Jesus is saying this at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we should be able to go back through the Sermon on the Mount and to clearly detect what he's talking about. He's already said quite a bit in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so when we get to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we should be able to go back and see what fruit it is that Jesus is talking about. But I want to draw your attention to three kind of docking stations. Three points that I think help us to understand what this fruit is that false prophets, false teachers will not have if you look close enough. Now hear that. Hear that. Because they are really good by Satan's power, by his, by his pretending to be light when he is darkness. They are really good at looking like healthy trees. So when we observe, when we look closely, these are three things that we will not see. In, in false teachers. The first of those is at the very beginning of the sermon. I mentioned it last week. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. And by the way, let me say this. These docking stations are beginning points. They're beginning points that I think help to rein in what Jesus is talking about so that we have a little bit of clarity. So chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we have said a lot about this idea of being poor in spirit. But one of the things that you will see, if you read any commentary on the Beatitudes, this is the beginning of the Beatitudes, one, one of the things that you will find across the board, if it's a good commentary, is it will talk about how being poor in spirit is is positioned very strategically and intentionally by the Lord Jesus because what Jesus wants us to understand is that everything he's about to say is a gift from God. It comes from God, my friends. So no one can just plow into the Sermon on the Mount with, with human resolve and self-reliance and confidence and just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get to work for Jesus. You can't. Because you enter into the Sermon on the Mount through the gate of being poor in spirit. So that's a docking point. It's a beginning point. So we have to understand that false prophets will not be poor in spirit. They will be proud men. They will be proud, self-righteous people, not humble people. One of the clearest ways that they can be recognized is by their pride and lack of humility. That's the first docking point, I think. The second docking point comes in chapter 5, verse 17. Go there if you will. Chapter 5, verse 17. And notice this. This is very important. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Listen to this. I have not come to abolish them. Here's the key. But to 
fulfilled. Here's my point. We know that false prophets will make little of Jesus. False teachers make much of techniques and nuggets of wisdom and principles for life and all kinds of little practical applications for how we are to be and do as human beings will make nothing of Jesus or make very little of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets means he's everything. He's everything. He's everything. Everything that preceded Jesus was about Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all of that. Everything before Jesus was about Jesus. Everything after Jesus is about Jesus. So false prophets will make little of the Lord. They will make much of other things. But they will make little of this fulfiller. The Christ. The God-man. The Lord Jesus. That's the second thing we have to see. It's another doctrine point. See the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 5, verse 3, the gateway to the Beatitudes, the beginning of the largest section in the Sermon on the Mount, which runs from 5.17 to 7.12. There we see Jesus, the fulfillment, which means everything he says in chapters 5, 6, and 7 grow out of him as being the fulfillment. Remember, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And here's the third docking point, very important for understanding. Who are these false teachers? The beginning of the section. Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning of the major section, and the beginning of this section, and what are the words? I want to read them to you again. The beginning of this section that precedes what we're looking at today goes like this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Here's my point. The false teacher will not direct the people of God to a narrow way. Will not direct people through a narrow bit and a constricted way. But will present a kind of easy, easy believism gospel. A kind of lax Christianity. A kind of Christianity in which we have, we, we have no life that Christ has called us to. A life not of service and submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords, but a life of just sort of ease and comfort. We know that false teachers will not call people to enter by the narrow way. And they will not call people to count the cost. They will call people to a broad let me give you a quote from Arthur Pink in his commentary on this passage. He says this, There is nothing in their preaching which searches the conscience and renders the empty professor uneasy. Nothing which humbles and causes their hearers to mourn before God. Remember, blessed are those who mourn. How much are we mourning? Not in this superficial evangelical culture. There's no room for mourning. It's cheerful. It's self-fulfillment. Nothing which humbles and causes their hearers to mourn before God, but rather that which puffs up, makes them pleased with themselves, 
and to rest content in a false assurance. There are teachers like this everywhere. Many. Many. And here's the fundamental problem. They do not give the people of God the word of God. And here's what I want to show you as we finish up this morning. Here's what I mean by that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This is a very important passage. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, but primarily verse 16. Now, this tends to be the verse that we go to when we want to explain to people that the Bible is inspired. And it's kind of an apologetic verse because it begins in this way. All scripture is breathed out by God. And that's where we tend to go for that, uh, for that argument. And that's good. We should go there. That's very important. But here's a more subtle point in that text that we need to see. Where there is scripture, where there is God speak, hear that. Scripture is God speaking. When it's not scripture, it's man speaking. When scripture speaks, this is what it does. Listen closely. This is why it's painful. This is why it's hard. This is why sitting in church and hearing the word of God is not comfortable. Here it is. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. It's a challenging word. For correction. That's a challenging word. For training in righteousness. That's a challenging phrase. Do you see that? This is not sort of stroke the ego, pop you up, make you feel cozy. That's not the language. That's what men speak does. But God speak does this. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And here's why. That the man of God, the woman of God, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. False teachers do not Produce equipped people ready for every good work. They produce false converts. They produce those who will follow them. As Jesus says, the blind leading the blind to destruction. Thank you for these wonderful words of Jesus that challenge every single one of us. Father, just cut us to the quick. Just draw us back to you in utter humility, poverty of spirit. We fall on our faces in the dirt, in our imperfection, in our sinfulness, in our wretchedness. And we just pray, have mercy on mercy on me, God. Father, we are grateful that you have already demonstrated your love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have already shown us mercy. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have given us, by your divine power, everything that we need for life and godliness. And you have given us your inspired word to reprove us and correct us and to train us in righteousness and teach us that we might be fully equipped, ready for every good work. Father, we thank you 
for your wondrous word. And we pray that we will build our lives upon it, that we will love it and know it and memorize it and meditate upon it and just spread it all the days of our lives. We'll be built on your word. Help us to beware of false prophets. Help us to beware of false teachers, those who say they speak for you but speak really out of our own hearts. Father, would you help us to be attentive and on guard and alert? Would none of us be false prophets or teachers, God? Would you protect us? Would you keep us? Would you make us faithful and humble as we seek to, to help others, to instruct others, to share the gospel with other people? Would we call people to a narrow gate and a narrow way, not to a broad way, a broad path? We ask in Jesus' name.